In the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Peter writes, Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Just about five years ago, I found myself on a short little road trip to Connecticut to visit my wife's grandfather to celebrate his 98th birthday. We used to make this yearly trip always right after Easter for his birthday, and we would usually make it with her brother and our sister-in-law, who also lived in Brooklyn and had a roomy Subaru that fit us all. But this particular year, five years ago, it was less roomy because they had had a baby. The first of the next generation of Offingers, Beatrix Offinger, the great-granddaughter, had been born. And she was wedged in between me and Caitlin in her throne-like baby car seat, which actually takes up so much room, even in a big Subaru. And she was facing backwards, as babies do, so I could see right into her cute little face, even if her chair was cutting off circulation in my left leg. We had all been eagerly anticipating the birth of this child. Gazing into her eyes on this particular day, I remember thinking, for nine months, I had no idea who you would be and what you would look like. But now you're here and your face looks so familiar. How could it have been that we did not know you? We certainly loved you. If you've ever awaited the birth of a child as a parent or friend or grandparent, I think this is a pretty common phenomenon. You can't imagine who this person is, who this person will be, but you love them. And when you do see them, you can't remember ever not knowing them. I think of this phenomenon when I read Peter's letter, speaking of Jesus to a diaspora of early Christians across Asia. He says, although you have not seen him, you love him. How can it be that we can love Jesus if we've never seen him? And yet something about our love for Jesus whether we feel it, or we want to feel it, or we are seeking some relationship with it, something about our love for Jesus brings us together today. Even though we do not see him, Jesus is why we are here. In the car, as we careened past delivery people on scooters, out of Brooklyn over the Whitestone Bridge, Beatrix started to fuss almost immediately, as babies in cars can do. I put my finger out and touched her hand, and she grabbed onto it, that baby reflex. She quieted down. And a few minutes later, I tried to take my finger away, but she wouldn't let me. 
The only thing that kept her calm this trip to Connecticut was clutching my finger. And of course, I let her do it. Today is the Sunday after Easter Sunday. Some churches call this day Low Sunday because the attendance takes a dip. If last week was your first week here, you might not recognize the place exactly. We are still celebrating, but it's a little more subdued. The timpani, the big drums are gone, for example. But it is still Easter. The season of Easter lasts 50 days. These early days of spring with wild weather and new life springing forth, we always spend these 50 days of Easter in church together reading the stories of the resurrected Jesus, walking around and greeting his friends after death. And the week after Easter Sunday is always this story, the story of Jesus appearing in the room where his friends are scared and sad, showing them his hands and his side where the wounds from his crucifixion are still there. And then there's Thomas, poor old Thomas, who was out running an errand or something when Jesus came the first time, and who really has trouble believing this amazing tale. Unless I see it, I won't believe it, he says. Jesus comes back a whole week later and invites Thomas to see. Put your finger here in my hand. Put your hand in my side. Now do you see? Thomas knows that this is Jesus. And Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Peter says in his letter, although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And I wonder, is that you? Is that us? Though you haven't been able to touch Jesus' wounds, do you believe? Or are you like Thomas? One of the things that we do in the spring at Grace Church is prepare people for confirmation. That is the rite by which baptized Christians make a mature declaration of their faith. This year, there are six seventh and eighth graders and six adults taking this step. And I've been meeting with them as they each prepare. Over the years, I have spent a lot of time preparing many different people for confirmation. And one of the frequent things that will come up in one-on-one -on -one conversations with those who are preparing is some worry about the legitimacy of their faith. People are often worried that they don't believe enough or that their faith is not strong enough or that their questions or doubts somehow invalidate their desire to be confirmed, to be part of this community. And I'm always reminded of a story that I once heard preached at the church where I grew up by a visiting bishop, probably at a confirmation. He talked about a priest 
He told a story about a priest who was sent out to a small village. The village had an active church, but not a priest around very often. And there were now a big number of people who wanted to get baptized. The priest who was visiting met with them all to prepare them. But the night before the big day, when everyone was to be baptized, he kept getting knocks on his door. Person after person was coming to say to him, I'm not sure I believe. One person had trouble believing in Jesus' resurrection. Another had trouble believing in heaven. Another couldn't believe that Jesus would come again. Another loved church and her community, but just couldn't understand certain terrible things that had happened in her life. How can God let bad things happen? Each person was convinced that the priest would decide not to baptize them, that their worries and doubts were too grave. And yet the morning arrived and the priest baptized each person. During the sermon, he said, perhaps I would not baptize one of you if you came to me and said you could not believe, but together your faith is stronger than your doubts. What one of you does not believe, the other does. And so you are all baptized to be Christian together, to hold each other up in the faith that Jesus wants from you. Everyone, everyone doubts. You are in good company when you doubt, when you wonder, when you question, and when you realize you don't have every answer. And all of that is not the opposite of faith. In fact, faith is strengthened by doubt. I was talking to my parents the other day, trying to remember this story I had heard as a child in the sermon so I could share it with you. My mom asked what I was going to preach about, how I was going to tie this story in. And I said, I'm not sure exactly how it'll all come together, but basically the thesis of my sermon is going to be, I don't care what you believe, just come to church. Just come to church. I heard my dad kind of yelp in the background, and my mom turned the FaceTime on him, and I could see him laughing at me. He said, I really don't think a priest should say from the pulpit, I don't care what you believe. The go to church part sounds fine, though. He's right, of course, I do care what you believe. I know Don cares what you believe and James cares what you believe. We care deeply what you believe and we want to hear your questions, your doubts, your struggles. I want to hear you wonder about these things. I want to hear you tell me what is hard for you to believe and what you want to believe. Your doubts and questions strengthen my faith, and they strengthen the faith of this community. But even more than what you believe, 
I care that you love. I care more that your doubts might strengthen your faith, that your doubts might bring you closer in to this community. I care that you face the unknowns of life like an expectant parent, unsure, of course, but deeply in love with the world's promise. Just a few verses before the Doubting Thomas story, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene outside the tomb. She is distraught. She cannot believe that Jesus is alive. She only knows the tomb is empty, and she thinks his body must have been moved. Jesus speaks to her, and she recognizes him. And he says to her, do not cling to me. I still have to ascend to the Father, but go tell the rest of the disciples what you have seen. Jesus chooses Mary, Mary Magdalene, to tell the story of his empty tomb, of his resurrection. His first evangelist, his first preacher, is a woman, a woman who is crying and who is in disbelief. This is who Jesus chooses to tell the story first. And he chooses her because she loves him. She loves him. Yet in choosing her, his instruction is, do not cling to me. I'm thinking again of Beatrix's hand, baby Beatrix. Do not cling to me, Jesus says. And then just a few verses later, put your finger here in my hand. The point of faith is not that we cling to Jesus. Rather, it is to know that he clings to us. Just like a baby clings to your finger. Jesus clings to us, holding us together in the palm of his wounded and human hand. In our disbelief, in our wondering, in our worrying, in our grief, in our tears, in our doubts, Jesus clings to us. What we have to do is love him. We don't have to know every answer. We have to love him even though we've never seen him. Love him even though we're not sure what he's going to be like in our lives. Love him even though there's just so much we're not sure about. Easter is an invitation into this kind of relationship with Jesus. And if this is your second Sunday here, it might seem a bit weird or a bit difficult to figure out how to do that, depending on where you are in your journey of faith. How do we love this Jesus we cannot see? This Jesus who tells us, do not cling to me. Well, we begin by loving each other.
Jesus' great commandment is that we love one another as he loves us, as he clings to us with the grip of a newborn child, tight and unwavering. Amen.